beauty of those stories that then our hearts, I'm going back to your heart thing, opens. Because I don't think, oh, now I figured out the right answer. You know, it's these steps. Those steps don't work. I have the right steps. And the beauty of these stories, they're not steps. They're people to get to know. The Roadmap Back to You. Reshape your world from the inside out and find peace of mind. Welcome to our Roadmap Back to You podcast. And today I'm really looking forward to having a conversation with David Bedrick, whose work inspires me. Uh, David Bedrick is a speaker, a teacher, attorney, and author. And he's written several books, one being Talking Back to Dr. Phil. Um, Alternatives to Mainstream Psychology, and Revisiting Activism, Bringing Depth, Dialogue, and Diversity to Individual and Social Change. His new book is You Can't Judge a Book by Its Cover, 17 Women's Stories of Hunger, Body Shame, and Redemption. And it's really, really amazing to have you here with us, David. Thank you for coming. Thanks. I'm really excited to sit with you. Yeah. And David is also the founder of the Santa Fe Institute for Shame-Based Studies, where he teaches and works with individuals around the world. So David, I'm really, really grateful that you could be here with me. And I would love to hear a little bit about your own journey. Like I've read about your work, but I want to know, how did you come to this path? Mm, It's a great question. I have so many different pieces I think about at different times, one thing that's been important to me, my own story, is that I grew up in a violent home. That meant for me, I had a father who used fists and belts and rage to express himself. And then I had a mother who was disempowered. That meant that she couldn't do anything about that. She couldn't name it. She couldn't see it. Never mind, stop it. So that had a big impact on me in the sense of what to do with that kind of violence. In this case, it was a male violence. It wouldn't have had to be, but he passed on that patriarchal fist in an abusive way, as opposed to a patriarchal fist that can do something positive. I'm going to make a better world. You could use a fist for that, but you could also use a fist to injure, which he did. And then my mother's impact over the years became more important to me. The blindness to our hurts the blindness to the abuses, the traumas, the social insults that happen on a daily basis. I started studying that in myself, but in the world, what is this attitude, this viewpoint that says it's no big deal, I didn't see that, it doesn't matter that much, you're making too much of it, you're too sensitive, that didn't really happen, that's over. That became very important to me in learning about shame Because the violences, when they're seen, Bobby, you know that, when they're witnessed, can begin a healing process. But when they're denied, people take in a view that denies it themselves, and then they walk around feeling like something's wrong with them because they're feeling things that don't make sense to them. So that became very important to my own learning and story. Mm, And how um, how did you heal that? Still healing. It's an important thing for me to say that still healing because there's a viewpoint that says we get over everything and that's okay. Some people do and more power to that attitude, but many wounds are generational. 
and intergenerational, and we make steps in our lives, good steps. I don't mean that as a to say this as a discouragement, like, oh, you'll never get over it. That's not the attitude. The attitude is you can make a difference. You can take a step. Your life can flower and show its gifts over time. Some of the pains that hold you can be lessened, and some of the pains can be turned into grist, something you can make something alchemically out of that are, that's rich. So for me, it means a lot of awareness. That means other people need to pay attention to me at times because I have blind spots like we all do. So studying my story, studying my story as a child, looking at, for me, I love nighttime dreams that give another set of eyes. Nighttime dream says, let me look at it for you, David. Let me show you what it's like. You may not notice that that inner critic is a monster, but my dreams will show me that, right? So dreams are really useful. And learning about social injustice, diversity, harm has been very important to my own healing. It relativizes and broadens it so that when I'm working on myself as David trying to heal David, then I remember, oh, I have a Jewish story. And my father was a Jewish man. He could have been not a Jewish man and used fists and belts, but he was, but it could have been a black man. It could have been a black woman who did that. But those are different stories in the background. The pressures that build up into a fist of a parent, let's say, come from places and they're different places. So for me to understand, oh, he had a Jewish story, enlarges my view and then lets me know, oh, I am not just David healing. I'm part of healing a Jewish story. And when I know that, Bobby, then I start thinking, oh, that means that this black woman is also healing a race story. So I don't see her only as a wounded, hurt individual. I graft her on to a bigger story also that lets my eyes be bigger. Mm. That's one of the things that I really loved about reading some of your work is that you say that it's not an individual problem. It's also a cultural problem. So what steps can we take as individuals if, if we've got so much of this? Because I know for myself, you know, I was born in an Indian family and definitely from my own experience, you know, this denial, this dismissal is very much there in not really facing the dysfunctions that we have in our own communities. So what steps would someone take to kind of start that path of healing individually and looking at it collectively. Well, oh, it's beautiful. Thanks for sharing that personal piece also. So then when somebody works with you or bring, brings healing energies to you in some of those situations, I would think all it's important to say, how is that particularly unique for you as an Indian woman? I'm David Bedrick. I'm a white Jewish male from the United States. There are things I don't know about what you experience. Just that opening creates an experience for you. You say, oh my gosh, now I feel seen. And now you'll say certain things. You'll tell me about your culture and what it's like to be a woman in your culture. And that's going to raise awareness about things. So that's really important. The other thing that occurs to me is I haven't met a person who doesn't have what I call an inner critic, something inside that measures David, you're not saying the right thing right now. Maybe you should have said a different answer to Bobby last time she spoke to you. Yesterday, you could have done better with this. Those, not just educational voices, but ones that persistent, right? They kind of hang out. 
Ooh, you could have done different with your hair today. You know, that you sure that sweater is the right one, whatever. You, you shouldn't have eaten those potato chips last night. You could have gone to sleep early. You'd be more rested. How come your, your belly is getting bigger? Gee, can you wear strip striped shirts that go down so you don't look that today? Those kinds of voices, which are more incessant, those voices, we take them in as individual voices. I mean, I walk around and kind of go, oh, God, I'm not doing well. But I'm not always readily seeing that those voices aren't only individual. They may be part of a Jewish and anti-Semitic culture. They might be part of a sexist, a patriarchal culture. So you might say, look in the mirror and kind of go, oh, I don't look so good today. But the eyes that are looking at you, that evaluated you that day, might be patriarchal guys' eyes, meaning they're saying, you're not going to be attractive to men today. And it's not saying it that way, but we internalize those eyes. So the second way of, that I think of, of helping people expand to those social awareness is to examine those inner criticisms and ask the question, does this only belong to me? Would other women experience it this way? Would other black folks experience it this way? Would other Palestinians experience it this way? Would other Jews experience it this way? Because if so, then you know you're part of a larger field of criticism. It opens your, your mind and eyes. I remember that, Bobby, if I can tell this story, I worked with a Swiss psychologist uh, 20 or so years ago. Mox was his name. We called him Max in the United States, but Mox is how he said it. And I was telling Mox about a story about my father's brutalness. And he started getting teary. And I said, oh, are you moved, compassionately moved by my story? And he said, I am, but my tears are coming for another reason. And I said, how come? He said, I'm a Swiss man. If the Swiss had dealt with, with the World War II and the Holocaust differently, not been so blind to the violence that was happening, acted like they were neutral while they were taking money and funds and gold from Jews. Maybe if the Swiss were different, your father would be different. He said, I feel a little bit that's part of my legacy. Isn't that a profound thing to say? He, we still talk about my father and the traditional things. But what a profound thing. Makes me teary to say it now, to bring in his role as a Swiss man, not as I'm a guilty, I'm a bad person, but just to enlarge the experience. That really is one of my most profound memories of working on my abuse was having him say that. Yeah, wow, that's really beautiful. I think these cultural conversations and the inner critic can be so strong. It can have such a strong grip on you. I remember when I first like was even aware of my inner critic, it took me like a week just to process oh my gosh, there's something in my head and it's, you know, blaming me, it's criticizing and it's so unbelievably powerful. It can be very um, kind of overpowering. And then to find a voice, I guess, to counter that is a journey in itself. Huge. I mean, one of the reasons I wrote the book, Why You, you Can't Judge a Body by Its Cover, is because women would come to me and say, how come I can't become healthier, eat differently, lose weight, this kind of things. And as a depth therapist, I think, I don't think, well, that's because you're undisciplined. That's because you need my seven steps. I think, I think that's a good question. How come? That's a fascinating question. Let me explore that. And one of the things I found in many women, all to some extent, is that inner critic is inside. 
So imagine it this way. I'm going to generalize across a lot of stories. Imagine something that you look in the mirror, you put on your blouse or your pants or something, and some, you put yourself on the scale, oh, I'm 1.5 pounds heavier, or oh, I'm 75 pounds heavier. Imagine that's happening. Now, that's a critical voice that hurts. If you were really awake, you'd kind of go, ow! <laughs> you know, if I said, Bobby, you don't look good today, let me tell you all the reasons why. You, you would not like to hang out with me very much, right? <laughs> you would say, ouch, or you would push back, or you would get angry at me, or you would say, back off, or you would make a boundary. You would do something if you were awake. You wouldn't just think, thank you, David, for your 17 criticisms today. You would think, you know, <laughs> that's not making me feel terribly well being around you. But that doesn't happen. So you've got that voice, and if the awareness is not there of that inner criticism, which has been internalized, right? We call that internalized depression. If a person's not aware of that, they just walk around feeling badly about themselves, thinking I should go change. So then that person goes, signs up for some kind of program, or I'm going to do a weight loss program, I'm going to do an exercise program, I'm going to eat healthy program. Great. All those things are great, except if it's motivated by that voice, by me saying, look at you, you're disgusting, or, you know, no, all those awful things. I don't want to repeat the words, but they're women are brutal to themselves inside. It's not just like you don't look so good today. It's like you're unattractive. You're not, you won't be, nobody's going to love you. Awful things. So if that voice motivates it, not like, wow, I have a genuine sense I could feel differently. That's a different experience than I hate myself more or less, right? Which That's a strong way to say it. Now, if that motivates a woman to go to a program, now imagine that. Imagine she starts doing something and feeling a little bit better. She starts feeling a little bit better and she starts thinking, I don't really like this hateful voice inside of me, which doesn't go away. I think I'm going to push it back. Now, how do you push it back if it says go on a diet program? You say, screw the damn program. Now, some people think that's self-sabotage, but I think it's self-love because listen to it. It's the same voice I said you might have if I criticize you. Something inside says, I'm not willing to be, I'm not going to be tolerant of being mistreated, especially by an internalized sexist voice that's telling me as a woman I should look my certain way. Screw the damn diet program. Screw all your suggestions. <laughs> now I go off the diet program. And then if it's not seen, the woman feels worse. So you got that blindness to that inner criticism is so painful that woman, if she wants to address her health issues in some different way, she might not. She might just say, I like myself the way I am. I say, great. <laughs> if she says, I still want to change, then I'd say, you have to change with a sense of power against something that's trying to change you out of criticism, not change you out of a, out of a loving, healthy interest. Mm, and is that power, I mean, I guess when you get in touch with that power, it's more powerful than the critic. I guess that essence is actually stronger than the critic or is it a balance or like or do you have to strengthen that voice or is it just a power that we have that is stronger it's a this is such a great question i gotta tell you the first answer i have is i don't really know for sure but i but i can tell you what i've seen and what i've seen is that if this people can't see, I have like a fist up. If this, this, this is a critic, David, you're no good. Look at your belly. You're 150 pounds. You'd be better at 142. Like that's exactly true for me. I, 150 pounds. I think I should be 142. Not that big a deal, but we know inside of us, it could be a big deal, right? Depending on the view. Somebody could, somebody could do that for three quarters of a pound. And then somebody could say that's illogical, but it's not logic. It depends how fierce that critic is. I work with a woman who was in the United States, a size zero, 
literally a size zero. And she would look in the mirror and she says, my butt is still big. So she wouldn't eat anything but broth and non-fat uh, sorbet. And she would go to, a, uh, to the gym to lose more weight and pass out and end up in the hospital because she had no fuel at all in her body. So somebody could say, well, that's crazy. You should realize that you're not heavy. But it's not just craziness. There's a voice inside that somehow got in there that no matter what she does is going to look at her and criticize her, right? It, you can't logically convince her. It's not really true. It's much deeper than that. So you have a critic on one side. I have like a fist up. And then you have a power on the other side. Once you become conscious of that, so that power meets it. Wait a second. I don't like being criticized. Don't talk to me like that. I'm not going to step on the scale anymore. Once a month only. Something that resists that. Then there's a wrestling match. And in that wrestle, people get stronger, right? Like if you and I were wrestling every day or lifting a weight or something like that, then you would get stronger. And the thing I know is the strength becomes at least equal to that critic. The reason why it's more powerful is not because it has more strength, because the strength basically is, is getting met by, right? You, you're met by that particular strength, but the strength when you own it, takes away from the strength of the critic. So the critic becomes less strong as you siphon off its energy. <laughs> it gets weaker, you get stronger. So it's the same amount of energy in the system. That's how it looks to me. But now this thing is, doesn't have as much fuel anymore because you're taking its fuel. I think I'm going to have a little bit of your fuel, a little bit more of your uh, criticism. I'm going to criticize you. So now it, you, take, you steal it back. You could say so it gets a little smaller you get a little bit bigger over time wow and um and one of the things that um i read on your website is you are an ally for marginalized voices so is that what you mean for the internal voices mainly yes they're marginalized meaning that most people most people in this case the women in the book but most but everybody look in the mirror of a, a of a kind of literal mirror or just sit down with themselves at night and evaluate their day and criticize themselves in a way that's not totally conscious. So it just, they just walk around saying, I feel really bad today. How are you doing, David? Oh gosh, I just feel really bad. If I were more conscious, I would say, oh my gosh, Bobby, I'm getting the crap beat out of me today. I did one session that I thought wasn't good and I'm like being demolished by that, right? That's different than describing me as not feeling well. Now I'm telling you I'm being beaten up. So now the beating becomes more conscious, less marginalized, because it's seen. It's a, I'm aware of it now. And now my response to it is going to be more likely. And your response, if I said, oh, I feel really bad to you, you might say, oh, I'm sorry, friend. But if I said, I'm getting the shit beat out of me, you might kind of say, who's doing that, right? <laughs> like, like voices of resistance and power that are once marginalized now start to come up to the fore. Mm. Yeah. And um, so there is some kind of energy of fight that you need to, I guess, build to fight back in that voice and that sense of power. Has that anything to do with like anger? I don't know how that's kind of related to feelings of anger and how to deal with maybe when you're externally criticized or you know you have these external voices you have feelings of anger. So is that similar to that? How does anger play into that? Yeah, it's not always that way, but often. 
because if you're being beaten up, now we're talking about inside, right? But if you're beaten up outside, right? If you went to school every day and kids bullied you and beat you up, there's a chance that you would be angry. Now you might not know it yet. You might just feel hurt for a while, depending on the child, right? You might just feel hurt. But at some point, it's likely, not 100% of the time, it's likely that if you work with that child, they're going to kind of go, eh, no, never hit me again, right? Or I'm going to take it out. I'm going to do the same too. So that comes up. The same thing happens inside, but it's unseen. So if I'm getting beaten up inside, bullied inside, I have the same schoolroom that I had as a kid right inside of me that's picking on me all, all the time. Then I have an anger built up. But if I don't know it, I just walk around feeling not so well. And then what happens is then somebody will do something on the outside. Let's say I'm on Facebook and someone gives me a little punch, a criticism that's not so friendly, not like helpful one. Then I might want to give them a punch. I might get angry. Part of that angry belongs to them, my relationship with them. I don't like what they just said. But not all of it. Part of it belongs to all the anger built up in me, you see, from all the hits that I've taken day after day. So, yes, that person was a jerk, let's say. Yes, I should say back off. I don't like that. I'm going to put up my dukes and hit you back in words, right, or something like that, or say no or block you, whatever I'm going to do. But part of that is an anger I walk around with that I don't know of. And then when my psyche gets the opportunity to express a little bit of it, rah, it feels really good because it's 10% that person and 78, 90%, whatever it is, of what's left inside. So some people have a lot of that background anger. When I was a kid, I'm 65, we used to call it having a bad temper. Someone all of a sudden exploded for no, seemingly no reason. Because all I did was break a little cup in the house. How come you got so angry? And that person, thinking my father, but many people, then there's like a, a buildup of that anger, but it's being repressed, marginally held down. So then when it gets out, something breaks the dam, we say, right? The glass breaks. I drop something on the floor. Blah! We call it a bad temper because all that anger is hanging out underneath, waiting to get released. Yeah, so I guess un underneath that anger is a, a, a real tender sensitivity. Yes, a tender sensitivity to being hurt and then the power. Then I have to say, wow, I have a little bit of anger towards Joe who put me down and I have a lot extra. What is that extra? It's King Kong wants to smash down buildings. What kind of buildings do you want to smash down, David, right? You want to smash down social injustice? Why don't you smash those down? So some of that is power that's needed to be used wisely, if we could say it that way. Yeah. So what would your advice be to direct that anger? Like you're saying direct it towards um, social justice or, yeah, what would your thoughts be on directing that? Yeah. My first thought, Bobby, is to stay cl first close to the person's anger, bringing it forward, make a fist with it, make a stomp, make a sound. Arr! What's your anger like? Arr! Arr! Make a sound, make a fist, make a dance. And the reason why, because everybody's anger and the power in it 
has certain things it wants to do naturally and certain things not. So you can't just decide, why don't you do this with it? You have to make sure it's consistent with the person's purpose in life and their their own inner power. Because certain powers get used in different way, right? Somebody says, I'm going to take on whaling boats at a friend, right? She was interested in whaling boats and Peace Corps and how they were um, Greenpeace and how they were hurting the whales. That was such a big thing for her. I was really moved by that, but whales weren't my thing. Other things were. And I learned that people have different big, small and big things they need to be up against. Sometimes they're more personal. I want to get a degree as a woman and nobody in my family has ever supported a woman to go to college. I need a lot of force to break through and apply to a school. So that could be, but you have to know that person's story. I used to ask people, what's your whale? <laughs> Meaning, what's the big thing that you would like to do something about? And it could be a very, could be a very simple thing. It would be leaving my relationship because I grew up in a culture that says that leaving a relationship is the worst thing. It's a sin. It would take a monster power to be able to do that. So you have to make sure you're consistent with the person's purpose. Otherwise, you'll give them a task that sounds good, but they won't succeed at it because their nature doesn't do that. It does something else. Each case is individual. Yeah. What do you think? For your, is it okay to ask? Yeah. What do you think about your own, your own big powers? If they were, if those big powers were free, what might they do? You don't have to know the answer. If, yeah, you smile when I ask. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for me, I've been on a journey where I was in a very strong Indian cultural conditioning. Um, I was even engaged and at a point where I was going to marry within a family that would probably suppress that more. And, you know, it's only been a couple of years and I broke out of that. And that for me was a huge thing to break out of that and you know travel and live in a country which I want to live and you know have a partner which is not within my culture and so all of that has has been kind of a breaking out of um, I guess the roles that I had thought were on top of me which actually were less than I actually assumed and now for me I guess it's like creating an impact in some way this is why I really like this word activism and I'm just in this journey, I guess, of becoming more aware of what's happening socially with social injustice. And I, I'm learning, like I'm, I don't think I'm there yet. Like I'm becoming more and more aware of what's actually happening in the world and trying to find where is my impact. So, yeah, I guess that's where I'm at. Mm. Do you know what a magnificent story you just told? being an Indian woman, breaking out of a relationship paradigm of a culture that's existed for generations. It's not just like, hey, it's not just one thing. Those are massive forces. People sometimes don't realize that. Well, just don't do that. Well, just say no. But saying no to me offering you a glass of orange juice is different than saying no to generations of a cultural paradigm. It's a huge thing that you've done. And then to leave and to leave to change the country you live in, the relationship paradigm, who you're going to love. This is, Bobby, that's amazing. That's amazing. Who you're going to love, that's a question. Makes me think about all the gay 
activism, I'm calling it gay, it's a single word for the moment, but representing the, all of the LGBTIA groups. But what a freedom to say, this is who I love. Isn't that incredible? I once went to a workshop and the facilitator was working with a woman a mother who was a mother and her daughter who was i think she was 14 or 15 i'm not remembering for sure it was a long time ago and we were helping the mother and the daughter with a conflict the daughter loved a girl she wanted to as a girlfriend right she he wanted to be she was loved this girl and the mother said that she wasn't against that but challenged her daughter saying it was going to be a much harder life the mother said for her loving a girl versus loving a boy right he's going to be a much harder life and that conflict went back and forth and at one point this 14 year old girl said to her mother don't you remember falling in love with somebody and it was so touching it was like the mother was like, uh, yeah, she said, that's what's happening for me. You know, like this freedom to, I fell in love with somebody, which gets missed in the political, I mean, it is a political question, but in the political debate, is it right? Is it wrong? I, I have my own, I'm a progressive person, so I'm pro rights and freedoms and things like that. But the love question is such a beautiful one. Can you love who you love? That's a huge freedom, and it may take great powers and strengths and the powers and angers to say, this is who I love. You would think that's a simple thing, but it's not. Mm. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I'm touched by your story. It's incredible. It's really beautiful what you share, and I know that yeah, freedom, I think, is a really big thing, and I think that was what was driving me, you know, this quest for freedom to really feel free and break out of my conditioning. And I know that there's a lot of, well, I, I empathize a lot with women's stories that I hear that are Indian and that are still stuck inside of these roles and not really being able to break free. So, yeah, I think this quest for freedom and breaking out of your conditioning or out of your roles is quite a journey <laughs> in itself. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. You're one of the women in my uh, stories I tell in the book, Jasmine, I get everybody has a name that's not their real name. Everybody consented to the stories, and I used a different name. But anyway, her name in the book is Jasmine, and she was a black woman. And at one point, she said to me, I have something that I'm very embarrassed to share with you. And I said, what's that? She said, sometimes I wish I were thin and white. And she said, isn't that a bad thing? You know, like that she's walking around. Right? If somebody's, if you walked around, I didn't want to think about it as you because I love you. You're a friend that I'm looking at you. You know, wouldn't it be terrible to be walking around thinking, oh, I wish I were different. And we all do in certain ways, more or less. But here she's walking around like that. And I said to her, I understand, yeah, all that, how you've internalized that oppressive, hurtful voice. And I said to her, what would be so good? about being thin and white in your mind, right? And in her dreaming, I call that, because she's imagining that as a good thing. And she said, if I were thin and white, people would open doors for me. She said, not just literal doors, but doors, opportunities. 
And then she got very teary and I said, what are you thinking? She said, you don't hurt things that are beautiful. People wouldn't hurt me so much if they said, oh, look at how beautiful she is. Now people hurt white women and so that's not the point, but the racial understanding that she's expressing and that that phrase moved me so deeply you don't hurt things that are beautiful. That would be so good to walk through the world and be a little safer from the harm that happens to me as a as a woman of color, as a as a black woman. And I said to her, "What if you were if doors would open for you if you were more safe and protected in like in this image of being a white woman? What would come out of you?" And I thought, Bobby, she would say, I would speak up more and tell people that they're racist. Or I thought she was going to say things like that. She said, what would come out of me? My love. She said, I have a lot of love in me, but it can't come out. How profound is that? An answer I never would have thought. Now I think it, but, I, but she taught me that. The love was inside of her. So all that big oomph she needs so that she can express her love more freely. That's really beautiful. And... How would we, I mean, I like the word, what you just said now is making the world a safer place. You know? And I know that you're a big advocate for Black Lives Matter movement. And so how do we collectively make this world a better place? It's a big question, but. <laughs> I want to ask you that question. <laughs> let me, let me, I'm going, I'm going to answer your question in a, in a minute, but how this, just, just think for a second, and this is genuine, I'm not trying to get you to say something. How would I, as a more or less white United States citizen man, white American man, how would I make the world safer for you, for you to be you? I feel that you are an example, this is why I've invited you on the podcast, is you are an example of someone that makes me feel very seen and very heard every interaction I have with you. I mean, I feel your heart, you know, when I see your Facebook posts, when I read your work, I feel your heart and your passion for being an advocate of people of color. And that touches me, you know, really, because I think just to be seen is a big thing. That's amazing. What's amazing to me about what you just said is you, you, you gave an answer that I hadn't thought of. You're, you're saying, one thing you're saying is how to make the world a better world for, in a social justice perspective. Show more heart, you're saying. saying I, you said something I wasn't, I didn't know you were going to say that, but then I was like, that's a fascinating answer. That's deep. It's not something I walk around thinking, I'm going to be an activist. I'm going to show my heart more. I don't think that way. I think I'm going to speak up more. I'm going to make, bring more awareness. I'm going to write another book. That's David's sort of way. But um, but you're saying, I feel safer because I see your heart. That's very touching to me, Bobby. Dear activists, show your heart. Some people will be moved by that. In addition to maybe more than the words, show your heart. It's gorgeous. Isn't that gorgeous? Yeah, that is. And, and I, feel, I feel your heart. I really feel it. And that moves me. It touches me. I, I was reading your book and it makes me feel really emotional because... I feel your heart in it, and that's what I think. Um, that's something that the world needs. Mm-hmm. And so, thank you for that feedback. See, I I grew up in a Jewish household, 
and I had a father who was very focused on my education. That's good. I like that. But but to the exclusion of the feeling life, right? Because if the feeling life can get in the way of studying and get in the way of getting a good grade, right? Because you could have feelings. You could be tired or you could be stressed or you could be scared or you could be tender and not like to take exams, things like that. So, um, so I walk around and often trying to do a good job, trying to get an A, right? A good grade on my podcasting with you or my session with a client, you know, so to speak, right? A me wants to do a good job. That's good. I want to get an A. I want to do a good job. That's good. But then I forget the heart may have as much to do or more to do with what happens. So you're reminding me, don't forget, David, the heart part. When you're trying to get your A, don't forget the feelings. <laughs> Thank you. The heart may be the medicine. The good skills that I learned are important, but then the heart might be at least as important medicine. When I was a kid and my father would my father would give me exams. Before first grade, my father gave me exams to get me ready so I could be the best first grade student. So if I did the first grade material before first grade, that's the insanity of my father. He's now gone, but dad, we still love you and disagree with you. But, but uh, so he gave me these exams and then I would do well on them. And sometimes he, the pressure of the exams that he gave me, I was like five years old, right? Were so much that I, would, I couldn't continue the exams. I'd be crying and so hard. And the attitude was, if I could get over my crying, I started thinking I could do better. And it took me years to realize, oh, that crying child that, that has feelings and heart. I need him not to get over him. He's not a wounded one. He has natural tears to the conditions of the world. That was part of the beauty. And you're reminding me of that story because the heart, right? His getting the spelling words right in his father's exams was good, but his tears were as much of the medicine. Like my father didn't know that tears were intelligent, quote unquote, were useful, important also. And the feelings that we have, the feelings are part of our healing. It's something that we've ignored, isn't it, as a society and the sensitivity that we are actually. And there's so much pressure, so much pressure in the world to perform, to achieve, to do well. I've experienced that very much with my own education and upbringing. And actually, I'm so sensitive, you know, but this pressure in education, and it's, it's a lot. It's part of the patriarchal viewpoint that this is what productive is, and this is what success is, and this is what progress is, you, that misses things like tenderness, don't create more widgets, you know, <laughs> don't make better grades, don't, you know, it can, but you know what I mean? That's the idea, especially of a capitalistic culture and a patriarchal culture. You put those two together and things like tenderness just are in the way. Get over that so you can do more. And sometimes that's good to get over things to do more, but then it doesn't understand the value of the tenderness in creating a world that you're like you're asking. That's a better world to live in. Yeah, and also slowing down, I think. <laughs> I keep practicing to slow down, but I notice that my mind is so conditioned. Like I was brought up with a Western education, so I've been trained to be productive and look at results. And I, I feel like for me, just unwinding that and sometimes going for a walk. I mean, when I go for a walk, there's loads of turtles here in Athens. 
So sometimes I'll just sit and watch a turtle and that will be my healing for the day. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Do you know, have you read um, Henry David Thoreau? He was an American author. Um, what's the book that he, I know the book that he wrote. Anyway, he was a, now I call him an environmentalist. That's not how he would define himself many years ago. And he, oh, Walden, he wrote a book called Walden. And it was all about walking out into nature <laughs> and um, the medicine of walking out into nature. And he said, what he said about the fast moving life we're talking about, productive life, he said it was a habit of living meanly. It was a habit. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? I'm going to go out, I'm going to get this, done. I'm going to get, that's great, do all those things. But he said it also became a cultural habit, a meanness. That, and I love that word because you think mean, I'm mean to somebody, but he said it was a mean way of living that then produced violences and things like that. Yeah, because we become, de we become desensitized to human-to-human -human feelings and human-to-human -human connections. And there's a desensitivity, I think, that occurs in that productivity and rushness. It's amazing what you're, you're talking about. Yeah. Then how do those sensitivities express themselves? They don't go away. If sensitivity exists organically, and it does, and more, some people more, and some creatures more, and some some flowers or trees more, meaning they have less ability to sustain against big forces. Then what do they do when they're suppressed, when they're marginalized? How do they express themselves? And some people express those sensitivities by eating. Then they'll eat certain foods, and then a person will say, I eat bread and butter, somebody told me. I didn't tell this story in the book, but somebody told me, I eat a lot of bread and butter at night. And I said, what do you, what's the bread and butter like? Well, I like my bread toasted. And then I put the butter on and it melts just the right way. And if the bread's got to be hot and, and she has this whole description of how she likes her toast and the butter. And I said, and what's it like to eat that bread toast with that melty butter right in the nooks and crannies? And she says, it's like, mm, oh, oh, so good. And that's exactly what she doesn't have during the day. She lives a harder life. I'm going to get things done. And then she's waiting for, mm, oh, oh, this is so sweet. You know, she's looking for that yummy, tender, deliciousness of life. So you think, why would she eat? Well, she's missing that, right? She's looking for that taste. She needs that taste more often during the day. She needs turtles. Right? <laughs> to, you know, to walk out and see, oh, look at that sweet, lovely creature, right? She needs a little bit of that. Mm. Yeah, it must have been so fascinating, your journey and like interviewing these women and taking them through the transformational journeys and witnessing that and then recording it and then writing about them all in the book, which is really profound. And I'll put the link for everyone to check out your book as well. Thanks. It was really, it's really amazing to be, it's such a, the word privilege people use in many different ways. I have privileges of being a man and a white person, et cetera. But it's, an, it's also a privilege to be given the opportunities to bear witness to people who are not me. 
Because some people say, why, why as a white man would you be interested in what women go through? I think, well, why wouldn't I? You know, but, but, but I understand the, 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 the challenge in there. But for me, it's such a privilege, to, the learning privilege. I don't know what it's like to be an Indian woman. So then I get to chat with you and we get to know each other outside of this kind of situation. And to me, it's a wonderful privilege <laughs> to say, what is it like? What's it like being you as you walk in the streets? And what's it like being you inside of you, in, the, in your head, in your, the way you feel, the way you think, the way you process things, where your power is stored, where your tenderness is stored when you can't live it? To me, that's an amazing thing. And it goes back to your question about making a better world. I wish more people would say, would leave their lane so to speak, this is me, I'm a white guy, I can write about being white men. Well, that's good, I should do that and learn about that and understand that. But then wouldn't it be good for more people to say, I'm going to take an other than me. I'm going to say, I want to know your experiences and your stories inside and out. And that's what I got from the book. I didn't intend to make the book that way. I was doing a research project on body shame and then women are initially signed up and not men, which I now see is, I can see why that happened. Um, it wasn't meant to be that way. But then it became this incredible privilege of like, wow, I can learn something that I wouldn't know and then use my privilege as a man to tell their stories, to learn, not to teach what I know about it, but to teach what they t teach me, what I learned listening and saying, now I can educate people. I can say, oh, let me tell you about eating. Let me tell you about the woman and the toast. I know her story is educational. I can make a theory out of it. That's fine. And I do make theories out of things. But the more important learning is the story. That's why in the book, I make 17 chapters of 17 stories. And you know, one that explains all the method and things that I used. But then let the stories of the women educate like they educated me. That, at least that's the hope. Yeah. Yeah, and when I was reading it as well, it's it's very. I was surprised at um, how many emotions came up. Just how emotional I got reading about these women's stories and really hearing it from their perspective. And it's true. Like I think it's a lot of the things we get is just advice on how to fix it or how to change it, but really getting a deep understanding of you know this woman's experience in it and and the way she looks at it and her own transformational journey which for me really touched me i haven't read all of them yet but the ones that i have read yeah that's the that's the point the transformational journey not advice in the sense of do this and do that which there's plenty of and almost never works but there's plenty of it because the weight loss industry is a 70 billion dollar industry there's plenty of advice if you google weight loss you'll you're not going to find stories uh about trauma as a young girl and the body's protective mechanism getting bigger that you might find down the line but then more subtle stories nothing you're just you're going to find steps and and things that work quote unquote that people say that work and that and one of my chapters is a, is a about trauma and a body getting larger as a way of protecting from the male gaze and from insult and the body creating layers to cover to hold to protect the woman's sense of uh, unsafety in herself and in the world. But these, the beauty of those stories 
And they really are beautiful. They're love stories. The beautiful, the beauty of those stories, and then our hearts, I'm going back to your heart thing, opens. Because I don't think, oh, now I figured out the right answer. You know, it's these steps. Those steps don't work. I have the right steps. And the beauty of these stories, they're not steps. They're people to get to know. She has a story, and you have to understand that. And if you, this and that's example, if you don't get to know her story, then you're saying, just lose weight. You don't even understand that she has a story. You don't understand that her body is needing to do something. You don't understand that she needs to deal with the issue of safety before you tell her to not eat potato chips, right? Yeah, the heart comes back, yeah. Otherwise, it just, it perpetuates the shame, I guess, with all these advice and everything on the internet, it just becomes more and more, more and more conducive to feeling shame. I had one more last kind of question. Um, I know that you deal with a lot of women who are kind of gaining weight or, you know, want to lose weight. For me, personally, I've had a big battle and struggle with gaining weight. And that in itself has had a lot of um a lot of shame attached to it because i'm slim and i'm skinny but for me it's been a struggle on the opposite scale of gaining weight and this you know a lot of people saying oh you're so skinny and you're so small that in itself has been an experience of shame but in a way that most people wouldn't see that to be the case have you ever had the opposite side of it looking at like I've heard many stories like that. They, I didn't put them in the book, and I'm real, I wish, I, I, wish I, I would have because my initial study didn't generate people who were saying I wanted to get away. But, I, but, I have, but tell me, we have to take a few more minutes so I understand you. The first question that comes to my mind, Bobby, when someone presents to me like you are presenting to me, could be something different, but you're presenting, is I always start off with this idea. I don't really know. And the, I don't if I'm if I'm asked for theories, I can say I know. But if I'm talking to a person, I always start off with at least somewhat or a lot of an attitude of I don't really know because it's really true, and that means I have to learn, like going out and seeing the turtles, right? I have to I have to go make observation so I learn. So the first thing I would say to you is, what's it like being a thin woman for you? Because I don't really know that yet. And I know one thing, because you said, I go out in the world and people say you're so thin. That's, that's an experience that doesn't feel so good. That's one of the things I've learned about you so far that you've told me. That's an important thing to learn. Yeah, I mean, for me, I remember one incident when I was at my workplace. And, you know, I can eat and eat and eat. And I just don't put on weight. It's just the way that I am, you know. And I remember at my workplace just being able to eat like a whole pizza. And women who would, I would notice a look or something and that would create a lot of shame in me for being able to eat what I want and also be continue being slim or skinny for not wanting to feel make anyone else feel bad so I would also cover myself up and not kind of be myself to have other people feel comfortable so that in itself would be Thing, you know and I think I, I wonder how I don't know how it is for other people that are slim but that's that was something that was my experience so it's almost like a shame for being slim as well that's very that's very touching to me so one thing I know there's a few things you're t- you're you're teaching me 
I'm calling it teaching. People don't use that word, meaning learning about you. Um, I like the word teaching because I like to learn, right? <laughs> I like to teach, I like to learn. But one thing you're teaching me is about being you as a thin woman. Is it is your sensitivity to how others feel comes up when you don't want to make other people feel badly. So my direction then with you would be, one of the directions would be, let's talk about making people feel comfortable around you or not. Can you, because you're bringing that issue to the forward, right? You might've brought something else forward. You might say, I starve myself, I haven't eaten, I try to eat little food, sometimes I don't eat for long periods of time or I throw up. You could have told that story, but that's not the story you're telling. That would be a different story, right? But now you're saying, I'm a woman who walks around in part caring about, concerned about how others feel, not wanting other people to feel bad. So now I think, oh, Bobby's freedom to be sensitive to people, not wanting them to feel bad, and to be at times less sensitive, not caring about whether other people are comfortable, might be important to her. You're nodding yes when I say that. So I think, and you're nodding yes says, oh, I'm that. That says, oh, that's a good track, David. She's nodding. That means ask more, inquire more, and then you're going to learn more about her story. Ask her about making people feel comfortable, being afraid not to make people feel comfortable. Ask her about stories about that, tell you about that. She's looking for some – that's manifesting around her thinness. Her thinness puts that issue in, in her foreground. Focus on that. Expand that. Talk to her about making people feel comfortable and uncomfortable. Appreciate both sides of her, David. The part of her that wants to make people feel comfortable, that's a lovely aspect of her. It might also, it might also be part of her being an Indian woman. Be, ask her about that. Some women have that. You don't know much about Indian women, David. Ask about that. See if you can understand that so she can understand the cultural aspect. And you can, David, because you don't know it. And then talk about making people uncomfortable. What would that look like if she was less concerned? See what that grows into. Then she can live a thin woman, quote unquote. The, the thin woman that she is might be made being sensitive and being insens insensitive, I'm calling it, right? Not, not accommodating too much. Anyway, that's the direction I start thinking about just with that little bit. But you see what's important to me, Bobby, about what, what you just sh shared with me and me thinking those ways why I wanted to think those things out loud is because I'm not interested in shame. I'm not interested in thinking what's the answer I'm interested in learning about you deeply and paying exquisite attention to what you're educating me about so that that can expand, not just so that I can validate you, but so I can even find out areas that you might not see yet. We both can learn together. That's a very important process for me as a way of learning about people that honors them, their subjectivity their subjective experience, not objectifying. Oh, yeah, I know about white thin women. Let me tell you about that. Yeah, I mean, that would be objectifying. I think my knowledge is already good for you without knowing. But now I know something, you, you know, that you taught me. This is, this is a very profound approach, and I think it's very unique. And not, not very many people have this approach from my observations of the coaching world and, you know, this kind of world that, yeah, it's a very unique approach. Yeah, in a way, in a way, it's so simple. In a way, it takes a long time to learn what to do well to develop a mastery. The simple part is ask people what it's like to be them. 
That's the simple part. The hard part is how to pay attention to what they're telling you, right? And to and to keep exploring, to, to learn what methods can you use to get to know those things more. But the simple question is, right, if you want to learn about me as a Jewish man, then you say, what's it like being a Jewish man, David, right? What's it like for you? And then I kind of go, oh, boy, I don't even think about that. I go, right? You'll, now you're in, in a way, right? And then I'll say, I don't know. It's sometimes odd in, when I go into groups that I can tell are evangelical Christian. Then what happens for you, David? What Can you have an example of that? Now, you're, now you'll start to find out about my experiences, right? And, and even in a few minutes, we'd, you and I both would learn something. That's so profound. It's such a profound way to inquire and learn and, and, and see people in a whole new way. Yes. Somebody says... I'm eating too many hamburgers, somebody told me in one of the book stories. And then somebody would say, well, you know, maybe you should take the cheese off. Maybe you shouldn't have the buns. Maybe you could eat hamburgers fewer times a week. Maybe you can change your hamburger interest into something else and never ask, what is it like to eat a hamburger? (laughs) Right? Simple question. I'm not saying she should or shouldn't. What's it like? What's it taste like? Do you like cheese on it? Do you, do you like, you know, do you do them in the afternoons? Do you do them by yourself? Like, like what, you, what are you doing, basically? Wow. And that, that could be approached for anything. It could be looking at your own fear or if you're inquiring about your anxiety or if you're inquiring about an emotion that you have. It's like really going into what does that feel like? What is that experience like? So you could use that inquiry into anything, really. Huge. It's a, it's a very profound thing you're saying. If someone says, can you help me with my anxiety? Then I say, tell me what your anxiety is like. It's like a, it's almost never asked. People say, oh yeah, anxiety. Okay, let me tell you what you do about anxiety. Google anxiety and you'll get thousands of, I've done things like this, you know, Google trust, Google anxiety, Google uh, social anxiety. You'll get thousands and thousands of hits. And almost none of them are going to say, ask the person what their anxiety is like. <laughs> Such a fundamental question. And anxieties are different. Somebody else, people are going to say, it makes me want to curl up and hide in the bed. It makes me angry. It makes me move fast and talk faster. It, it, all People can say all kinds of different things. Like, it makes me try harder. It makes me stiff. All different experiences. Wow. Bobby, it's so lovely sitting with you. I could sit here for... for a long time forever unless I would have to pee eventually. <laughs> oh, it's, I really appreciate you being with me on this podcast and sharing this time with me. And I really acknowledge you and, you know, you've been such a, a profound friend on this journey. And, yeah, I really honor the work that you've done and, yeah, everything that you've put out there. And I'm looking forward to reading the rest of your book and taking it slowly and digesting it and and getting into your wisdom as well. Mm, thanks. Lovely to be with you. I thought I was going to do like a half hour, but I've now spent all this time because I was enjoying your your company and, and, and the conversation and the relationship. Yeah, it's been beautiful. Thank you so much. Hello, friend. Thank you for listening. If this podcast has sparked a flame in you, I encourage you to take the first step and download our free Ikigai journal or join the community at kanagarajourneys.com. Also, I invite you to share this podcast with a friend if you feel it can benefit them. 
using the wisdom of the Tao, the Enneagram meditation techniques, and so much more. I share the tools that have made a profound impact on my own journey and invite experts and high performers to share their secrets. I wish for you love, compassion, and peace, and I look forward to connecting with you on the next episode.